You may be seated. Man, have you seen those gas prices? Man, everybody is concerned about miles per gallon, right? I mean, it's a really important thing. You want to be able to get the most bang for your buck when it comes to gasoline. Hey, the same is true when it comes to the Word of God. When we engage in the Word of God on a Sunday morning, it's not just for that moment, not just for the hour that we're together, but we want it to be an experience of of learning and of fellowship and of community and of worship and of expanding our minds and delving deep into the Word of God, but at the same time, move it out farther than just this moment. We want to see how far we can take the sermon and God's Word down the road as well. And so in the middle of your bulletin, you're going to find an MPG insert. That stands for Memorize, Pray, and Glorify. We're going to give you a scripture to memorize. We're going to give you something to pray over the next five, six, seven days. And then we're going to give you some very practical things that you can do to glorify God. And that's going to be the MPG, taking the Word of God further down the road during the week. And then on the front side of it, you're going to see the sermon outline for the message we're going to be going through today. Uh, But before I jump into it, does anybody need some good news? Yeah, hey, we love babies around here as much as anybody. It's a new life, a new person, human being made in the image of God. Charlie Mae Scarf and her husband Adrian are new parents to a baby boy by the name of Ezra. We're excited about that. Nearly eight pounds. It was 21 inches long. It's a keeper. And we're grateful. Uh, you know, at our typical thing to do is, you know, we want to call. Uh, we want to bless people. We want to encourage them. Uh, please, no phone calls at this time. If you'd like to send uh, a card or one of the pink cards you find in the pew in front of you, an encouragement card, or even just send a text, do that. But that's all. Remember the Scar family in our prayers. Uh, We kicked off a new series this past week, as you know, and as we just saw in the video, that I'm calling Undeniable. Something that is undeniable is hard to dispute. If something's undeniable, it's obvious. It stands out. And most of the time, something that's undeniable is really incontestable. And it may not be a word that you've thought about, your walk, you know, that describes your walk in Jesus, But the word undeniable is a word that describes your life and my life as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. We are undeniable people when it comes to the beauty of our life. And Jesus, in the text that Tim read this week and was read last week, is sort of the main text for this sermon series. There are two metaphors that Jesus uses to describe your life and to describe my life. We are salt and we are, what's the second one? Light. Light and salt. Salt and light. As we saw last week, if you're salt and light, you have an undeniable character. As salt and light, you have an undeniable character. You can't miss salt or light. You can't ignore salt or light. Salt is an influencer. It changes and and morphs. And blesses, especially if it's me, it blesses everything that it touches. Your life, too, is an influencer. Not only that, we are light, and light is an illuminator. Light comes in the darkness, it makes visible what is not visible, and that's what your life is in Christ. As a disciple of Jesus, you are, by the way that you speak, 
by the way that you, your, your emotional life, where you place your affections, your behavior, you're illuminating the presence of God in the world. That's the first thing. As salt and light, undeniable characters. Number two, being undeniable is uh, a way that we describe our doing of good deeds. We have sort of this undeniable doing of good. What it means to live as salt and light is to live a life of doing good. Like Jesus is described in Acts 10 by Peter as going around and doing good. But it's more than just the mere good deeds. It's more than just mere good deeds. It is a life of doing good in which the good that we are doing points to God. And that's what Jesus is talking about at the end of that section that Tim read just a couple of minutes ago out of Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your what? Good deeds. Well, let's say that together. That they may see your good deeds, and in doing the good deeds as light, very visible, very observable, very demonstrable, then you will glorify, they, people will see those good deeds, and they will give thanks, they, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Now, this is not just Jesus. Paul talks about the same thing, about how our life sort of radiates out, it shines out. And he writes this to a church in Philippi, in the second chapter of the book we call Philippians, a letter we call Philippians. He writes it this way, chapter 2, beginning verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. I mean, is that a challenge or what in the world today? Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. When that happens, guess what? There's a product. Then you will shine. Then you will shine among them like stars in the skies you hold firmly to the word of life. I love that passage. Eugene Peterson wrote the message. Many of you know that translation, a very dynamic way of translating in modern today language the New Testament. He takes this same passage and he translates it this way, very dynamically, but he says it, and I love what he's doing here. He says, go out into the world uncorrupted. A breath a fresh air in a squalid and a polluted society. Provide people. I mean, there's, there's a service in the way that we live. We're providing people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Our life is providing people with a glimpse of good living and a living God by carrying the light-giving message into the night. That's you and me. There is something about the way that we live that is, that is a sermon. There is a way that we live that actually becomes a sermon without words. It not only points to God, but it also illustrates and illuminates God before the watching eyes of the world. And it says something very important about the profoundness of the transformation of life that takes place when the gospel comes entering into our hearts and soul. And so if there's a big idea that I want you to have out of this sermon series, it's this. It's difficult to dispute a beautiful life. It's difficult to dispute a, a beautiful life. As Jesus' life is beautiful, 
so too our lives are to be beautiful. We are walking in His steps. We're imitating His life. And one of the reasons that we're called not just to use our mouth, but our entire, entire life to illuminate and illustrate and manifest God in the world, it's because of this reason. Your life may be the only Bible that some people have a chance to read. And disciples of Jesus bring both a beautiful message and they bring this beautiful life into a world that desperately needs it. Think about Jesus as you read about Him in the Gospels. Jesus illustrated with His life, and not just with His life, um, His words, but He demonstrated with His life the message of love and forgiveness and goodness and kindness and generosity that He preached every day. His words and His life were congruent. They matched up. They were together. The beauty of Jesus' life not only stood out in a world of self-righteous Pharisees and violent zealots and power-hungry Romans, but it just authenticated His message. An incredibly self-righteous and judgmental and self-confessed hard guy to deal with by the name, you know, the self-righteous Pharisee by the name of, of Saul would become the Apostle Paul. And this guy was the one that went into, into the entire world preaching a message of grace. There was a zealot by the name of Simon who decided that he was going to put down his sword in order to follow the Prince of Peace. There was a Roman soldier who observed the way that Jesus loved and forgave, even, especially, even while he is being crucified. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in observing the way that Jesus died, said in Mark chapter 15, Surely this man is the Son of God. One of the most extraordinary things that we read in the Gospels about Jesus is His tenderness and His gentleness and His constant engagement. Not only with the good, but especially with sinners. Not only the healthy, but also the sick. Not only those who have their act together, but surprisingly with those whose lives are falling apart. And not just with the respected and the honorable and the dignified, but surprisingly with the damaged and the dirty. When this was said of him, it was meant as an insult. They didn't mean it as a compliment, but it was one of the most accurate descriptions of Jesus when it came to describing his mission on earth. And it was this, Luke chapter 15. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. That's Jesus. Welcoming sinners and eating with them. Now, one of the really great stories, I think, in the Bible, and there, as you know, I, I love all the stories. They're all great. But a really great story in the Bible illustrating this is the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. The story begins this way in verse 1. Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. There's a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. And when Luke says that he was wealthy, he meant with a capital W. This is one of the richest individuals in Jericho. And he just happened to want to see Jesus 
wanted to see who Jesus was. And because he was short, something I can identify with, and he could not see over the crowd, he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore fig tree in order to see Jesus since Jesus was coming down that street. Now, the name Zacchaeus in ancient in, in Hebrew means beautiful and innocent. If you know somebody by the name of Zach, uh, that's sort of what their name means, uh, beautiful and innocent. But Zacchaeus was not living up to his name. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was anything but beautiful and innocent. He was ugly and duplicitous and probably mean-spirited and greedy. And, and tax collectors in ancient Israel, were despised as traitors. And none more so than the chief tax collector himself. He was the boss of the bosses. He was like the Tony Soprano head of his family. And they were seen as traitors because they were in cahoots with Rome, the foreign power. And the taxation was enormous. Rome would give them a certain amount of money that they had to come up with at the end of each year. And these tax collectors would exploit that tax system where they would not only get the money that they needed to pay off Rome, but Rome said anything that you get over that, you can keep. And so they worked hard year-round exploiting that tax system in a way that made them wealthy, but it made them wealthy at the expense of their fellow Israelites. Now, if we were to think about them in a modern-day parallel, it might be the, the sweatshops where you have poor working conditions, you have unfair wages, unreasonable hours, lack of benefits, sometimes there's child labor. And what the sweatshops really boil down to is that there's a very few, a minute number of human beings that are getting wealthy, 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 beyond the comprehension of others, but they're getting wealthy to the detriment and injury of others. And that was what was happening in ancient Israel with these tax collectors, especially the chief ones. And tax collecting in the ancient Jewish world, collecting taxes for Rome was a way to become contemptible to your fellow citizens. That word, contempt, described the everyday Jewish attitude towards tax collectors. Now, it would be accurate to say that there was no one and Jericho is not the largest of the cities, but is a large, large city, that there is no one in the general population of Jericho who was a fan of Mr. Beautiful Innocent. He was not popular. And the reason, you know, the average Joe Schmo of Jericho would say, would ask, how could another human being do this to another human being? How could a person do this to another human being? And they just, they just looked at Zacchaeus with sort of that, you know, that jaundiced eye. Imagine the surprise when the crowd who is cheering Jesus, and they're going by the sycamore fig tree, and there's Zacchaeus, and Jesus stops and says to Zacchaeus, calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going to go and stay at your house, which means that he's going to be there long enough for Zacchaeus to get all of the servants to prepare a meal, which was going to take hours, but he was going to hang out with Zacchaeus and eat with him. 
So Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' house. He eats with him. And all of Jericho, I mean, the news is spreading, right? All of Jericho is scandalized by Jesus because he's a known righteous man. In fact, some people are beginning to say that he's the Messiah. He's this known righteous man, but he's showing this kind of attention to, of all things, this sawed-off social misfit slash tax collector that no one really cared two flips of the finger about. In verse 7, all the people saw this, and they began to mutter under their breath. You know how this is. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Yet, yet the beauty of Jesus' gesture, the beauty of the quality of His life, the beauty of His message, these are not lost on Zacchaeus. He is undone by this beauty. The beauty of grace and of kindness, of gentleness. And for the first time in his life, the ugly Mr. Beautiful becomes the beautiful Mr. Beautiful. And Zacchaeus stands up and he says to the Lord in verse 8, Look, Lord. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Basically, he is standing up and declaring, I am giving up all my wealth for your beauty. And here's the thing. This conversion would never have happened if Jesus had not chosen to be unoffendable where everyone else had chosen to be offendable. This kind of beautiful engagement, my friends, remains incredibly important in this present generation that has, as, as Dr. John Perkins has said on multiple occasions, the people of this generation have turned hate into an asset. To be unoffendable is not to say that there are not offensive people. There are. And some of them are in this room, including your preacher. To be Unoffendable is not to say that there are not offensive people or acts in the world that are offensive, that we, you know, we should get angry when we see these things. There are offendable things that happen every day in the world. There are, there are, there are, and the list is too numerous to mention. And sometimes distance is the proper response. But when I talk about us becoming unoffendable as the people of God, I mean this. To be unoffendable is to recognize Satan's strategy of separating people of the gospel from people who need the gospel one 
offense at a time. I'll read that again. To be unoffendable is to recognize Satan's strategy of separating people of the gospel from people who need the gospel one offense at a time. Now to develop that, not only in our own community of faith, but as a community of faith that's salt and light in the community at large, and not just in the community of San Antonio and Bear County and you know, the, the metropolitan area, but the world at large, let me suggest a couple of things. Number one, in our minds, we need to build bridges to, not walls between people. We need to build bridges to people and not walls between people. You are a child of God because Jesus knocked down the wall of sin that separated you from God, and He built in its place a bridge of grace using His body on a cross that allowed you to cross from lostness into saveness, from alienation into sonship, and into the love of God. It was His way of life. In John chapter 4, you know the story. Jesus is having this conversation with a Samaritan woman who has had multiple failed relationships with men. And the relationship with the man that she's in now wasn't even a married relationship. And she's now a social outcast in her small village there in Samaria, village of Sychar. And yet... As offensive as this woman was to all the people in the town of Sychar, that's why she's going in the middle of the day, not the cool of the morning or the evening, but in the middle of the day, in the heat, is because she's persona non grata. She's going in the middle of the day. She is offensive to them. But Jesus is unoffendable. And he engages her. And not only in this conversation where he engages her with questions and the have a conversation, and they speak with each other. She come to believe that he's the Messiah. But there's an entire village that comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they were a bunch of Samaritans. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at dinner when a known sinner, probably a prostitute, in that town comes. She pours oil on his feet. I don't know what the backstory is there, but there is something about this encounter with Jesus that so transforms her that she's willing to go into a room and, and do this for Jesus. The host of the dinner is offended. Offended that a woman like this would come into his home. Even more offended that somebody like Jesus who is a known righteous man, perhaps even the Messiah, offended that he would allow her, the offensive, to touch him. But Jesus turns to her and says, Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. How about John 21? Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And what is the first thing that Jesus does when he is reunited with his so-called best friends for the first time after they disowned him and they abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. He fixed breakfast for them. 
Build bridges, too, not walls between people. Then number two, give up the right to contempt. Give up the right to contempt. Contempt has a formula. Disagreement that turns into anger and, and, and resentment and can, becomes contempt always leads to harm. Disagreement plus contempt equals harm. And you know what we think? When we think of harm, we think of some kind of a physical injury or maybe even an emotional one. But I'm going to tell you that when we, the people of God who have the gospel and know the greatness of God's love, when we begin to hold people in contempt, we do the most damage when we withhold the gospel from them. Because we've not only hurt them by withholding the blessing of God's grace in this life where abundant living begins and there's forgiveness and the power of the Spirit that helps us to become the human being that we always should have been and now can be, but we have also withheld from them the possibility of eternity in the presence of God. You know, there's always going to be disagreements, even among people who love each other like family. And there's always a place for healthy, godly anger in a fallen world. Godly anger just reminds us that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But when anger becomes content, uh, contempt, it creates a pathway to harm. Contempt is where we lose sight of the fact that the people we disagree with are still made in the image of God. And if we do not see a person made in the image of God, it becomes easier in our contempt to hurt them. It becomes easier to degrade them. It becomes easier to deprive them. In the middle of the 20th century in Western Europe, in the middle of Germany, when the Jews became contemptible, they became exterminatable. Contempt says that a person is worthy of harm because they deserve it. We build bridges, not walls. We give up the right to, con to contempt. And then we, lastly, we employ our secret weapon. And we'll close right here. What is a secret weapon? I mean, you know, we use that all the time, right? A secret weapon is something that is, that is unexpected. It's employed unexpectedly, and it turns the tide of, of a struggle. Every person in this room who is salt and light has a secret weapon. You know what it is? It's your Christ-like love. In this world, people use the word love all the time. Love is you know, is defined as, uh, you know, what I can get out of you. We may not say it in crassly, those, those crass terms. Or it's, I love you to this point, but really no further. Your secret weapon is a Christ-like love. There is something beautiful in loving the ones the world loves to hate. In a world of spiteful and mean-spirited canceling of humans, a far-reaching, humble, and gracious love that is Christ-like is unexpected. And when somebody is hungering and thirsting 
because of that God-shaped hole in their heart and that love shows up, it's like the world changes. It's like the tide of battle has changed. It's an undeniable secret weapon. Listen, my friends. God still loves the world and everyone in it. Amen. A sinful nature is still the biggest problem that human beings will ever face. Right? And life in the kingdom of God as a child of God is still the greatest offer a human being is ever going to receive. Ever going to receive. And the love of God that is demonstrated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the truth that makes that kind of life possible and makes it real. The gospel, friends, is true and it changes everything. The Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, is still active convicting human beings of sin and of judgment and of righteousness day in and day out, every day this side of the second coming. And the undeniable, unexpected, mouth-opening, eye-popping, beautiful, Christ-like love of a transformed life. Your life and my life is salt and light. Makes the gospel believable. If God can do that to Mark after, he can do it to anybody. If God can do this to Prentice Spivey, he can do it to anybody. If God can do this to John Skipworth, he can do it to anybody. If God can do this with Jack Frost, he can do it with anybody. If anybody can do it with Debbie Cole, they can do it with anybody. John, who at one time was, had this nickname, Bonergius. Cool nickname, right? Until you know what it means. Sons of Thunder, which sounds pretty cool. But we know about this nickname because one day James and John are upset because the Samaritans don't want anything to do with Jesus and they're offended. They're so upset. They're so offended. It's Jesus, come on. They say, Jesus, would you like for us to call down fire on this village? And everybody in here at some point in our life has recognized and said, yeah, good idea. But Jesus says, aren't you rightly called sons of thunder? No, 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 no. It's, it's that man who towards the end of his life writes a gospel. And he reminds us of something that Jesus said 2,000 years ago. By this, this self-sacrificing love, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And then later on, maybe a year or two down the road, and writing again about the the this incredible presence of love in the people of God. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, 1 John, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence 
on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Say it with me. In this world, we are like Jesus. Let's say it again. In this world, we are like Jesus. That is the calling of people who identify as salt and light. We are in this world like Jesus. And that's what the world needs. That's what the world needs. People who not only talk a good fight when it comes to the gospel, but live it at the same time. And they're able to see that there's an authenticity and a genuineness to the words of the gospel because it's seen in the flesh and blood of everyday living in such eye-popping ways that it can't help but be true. We often say it's too good to be true. The grace of God is so good It's got to be true. If there's a way that we can minister to you this morning by helping you become like Jesus in this world, by being converted, by being saved, by being adopted into his family, and you're not sure really what you need to do, quite what are the steps, what are the, how does that happen? Then we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them as we stand and praise God together.